the fashion industry in America is big business. It is estimated that Americans each year spend approximately $275 billion on clothes. The average person spends approximately $1,000 each year. The average American teenager spends a little bit more than that, somewhere between $1,500 and $3,000 each year simply on clothing. The average American woman will spend in excess of $100,000 in her lifetime on clothes. Why do we spend so much money and why are we so infatuated with clothing? I guess because we live under the mantra, out with the old and in with the new. That motto is not original with our culture. In fact, even in the first century, the Apostle Paul will, spiritually speaking, say, out with the old and in with the new. It is with that in mind that I ask you to take your Bible and turn to the New Testament letter of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. As this morning, I want to preach to you a sermon that's entitled, Dressed for Success, Dressed for success. Colossians chapter 3, I'll begin reading at verse 1. Once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Colossians chapter 3, allow me to begin at verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated, at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other, Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. The Apostle Paul reminds us 
that belief and behavior are inextricably tied together. What we say we believe ought to impact how we behave. And how we behave ought to be influenced by what we say we believe. So that belief and behavior are inextricably tied together. That statement was a given many years ago in our culture. But today we live in strange times. So that today we can have grown adults who claim to be Christians, yet they have no problem living together before marriage. We can have today students, teenagers, who are Christ followers, that by their words they say that they love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they praise the Lord with everything inside of them on Sunday morning, but cannot get out of the backseat of the car on Saturday night. Today, we have children who have walked through the waters of baptism. They call themselves Christians, and yet, without blinking an eye, they will lie to mom and dad when simply asked the basic question, did you clean up your room like I told you to? There's a problem today because the Apostle Paul reminds us in this hour that belief and behavior ought to be inextricably tied together. So Paul comes to our passage and he says, in light of the supremacy of Christ, it ought to have some daily practical implications. In light of the preeminence of Christ, It ought to make a difference in how we live our everyday lives. If you read much of the New Testament, you realize that Paul's pattern is pretty much the same. In his letters, he will start writing about the belief that we have in Jesus Christ. And then at some point in the letter, he will turn and draw out behavioral implications in light of our belief in the Lord Jesus. Take, for example, the book of Romans. The first 11 chapters, Paul talks about our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then, in verse 12 and following, he draws out some behaviors that you and I ought to modify. For in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Therefore I urge you, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto the Lord, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Because Paul knows that belief and behavior inextricably tied together. Or take, for example, Ephesians. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul talks about our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore I urge you as a prisoner for the Lord to live your life with the calling that you have received. And in verses, in chapters four, five, and six, he draws out some present day implications based on the belief that we have in Christ. Once again, here in our, in our letter, the letter to Colossians, the first two chapters, he speaks about the preemin- preeminency and the supremacy of Christ. And in light of that, he says, beginning in our chapter uh, three, verse one, since you have been raised with Christ, set your mind, set your heart on things above. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1, that you and I are to set our heart and mind on things above. 
That word set is a second person plural present imperative. To say that it's a second person plural is to say that Paul is writing this not just to one person, but he's writing it to the entire church. So that this was a letter, and in good southern vernacular, Paul is saying, y'all need to set your hearts and minds on Christ. It's not just one person, it's all of God's people. This is not just to a few, this is to all of us. It's second person plural. It is present, which means it's a continuous action. This setting of heart and mind on Christ is not a one-time deal. For the life of the Christian is a perpetual practice of setting our heart and mind on Christ. It's not that we just do it once, then it's over. No, I say every day, frequently, throughout the day, we have to intentionally set our heart and mind on Christ. It's present, which means it's a continuous action. It's an imperative, which means that it's a command, not a suggestion. So here, when Paul says, set your heart and mind on Christ, it is second person plural, y'all. It is present in that we continually do it. And it is a command, it's an imperative, not a suggestion. Paul says that we are to set our hearts and minds on Christ, which is above. And I realize that I don't really need a show of hands to answer the question, has there ever been a time when an ungodly thought has come into your mind? Ever been a time when you've had a feeling that wasn't Christ-like take up residence in your heart? I don't need a show of hands. I don't even need you to smile and nod. I understand that this is all of us. All of us have moments when we have ungodly thoughts and we have unchristlike feelings that well up inside of us. And what do we do with that? Paul says we have to intentionally, perpetually set our heart and mind on Christ. I've met people like you've met people. People who've said, I, I just can't help the way I feel. I, I just can't help it. It's just the way I feel. It's, 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 it's my upbringing. That's what it is. It's just my upbringing. I just can't help the way I feel. The Bible says, yes, you can. I've met people who say, you know, I just can't help the way I think. It's just, I, I think like my daddy. I just, I think like my daddy. I think like my granddaddy. I just can't help the way I think. And the Bible says, yes, you can. I don't know why all my impersonations sound like, a, you know, a redneck hillbilly, but regardless... You've met the individuals who say, I just can't help it. I can't help the way I feel. Can't help the way I think. And the Bible repeatedly says, yes, you can. Because of who Christ is, because of the spirit of God, which lives inside of you, believer, you have at your disposal the ability, the capability. You have at your right hand the power to evict that thought that does not glorify God, to evict that feeling that is not Christ-like. And Paul is telling the church what I tell the church, what I tell the graduates, when I tell anybody who's listening to my voice this morning, what Paul says is in light of the supremacy of Christ. You ought to set your heart and mind on things above. You have the capacity to do this. Mindset is a powerful thing. The way you set your mind shapes not just attitudes and actions, 
but it also helps to shape and form belief and thereby behavior. And you have the capacity to set your mind. To the person who's listening to my voice and says, Pastor, that sounds a little bit too humanistic. It sounds a little bit too much um, anthropocentric, centered on man. Let me just remind you what the Apostle Paul will write in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, when he says, take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. That is an aggressive analogy. Take captive every thought, every thought that flies through the screen of your mind. I find it interesting that Paul does not spend a lot of time telling us how to not have ungodly thoughts. But he does spend an enormous amount of time about when you have ungodly thoughts, this is what you ought to do. He does say that when something comes across your face, comes across the screen of your mind, wells up inside of your heart, whenever you have something ungodly that is coming up inside of you or right in front of you, that you must intentionally take captive every thought. When I think about that imagery of taking captive, I think of a police officer. A police officer who sometimes has to, in a very rough way, apprehend a perpetrator. And sometimes he has to take captive that perpetrator, which means there might be a tug of war, a wrestling match. And he may have to wrestle that perpetrator to the ground, take his hands and cuff him, stuff him in the police squad car, take him down to the precinct until he waits appearance before the judge. That's the imagery that Paul has in mind when he says that we have to take captive thoughts that are ungodly, feelings that are unchristlike. We've got to wrestle it to the ground. We've got to cuff it and stuff it. We've got to take it before King Jesus, who is the righteous judge, and he will evaluate every thought and every feeling. You and I have to stop being loose and lazy and lousy with our thoughts and feelings. We, we have to perpetually, we have to intentionally take our thoughts, take our feelings, subject them to Christ. I say this to the graduates, but I'm not just speaking to graduates this morning. I'm speaking to the entire body of Christ. We have to intentionally do this. One of the ways that helps me um, when I'm trying to take captive a thought that's ungodly, trying to apprehend a feeling that isn't Christ-like. I always try to have close at my disposal a song and a scripture verse. And throughout the years, throughout the seasons, it changes. The song and the scripture verse. But there's a certain song or there's a particular scripture verse that helps my mindset, helps to set it right. Now, I don't always do it. Sometimes I fail just like you. There are times that I acquiesce to those negative thoughts and negative feelings. But on my best days, there are times when I will reach for that song or reach for that scripture verse. Now, for a long time, that song to me has been Matt Marr's Lord, I Need You. That song has helped me in numerous seasons of my life just to be able to sing it. And if you're waiting for me to sing it out loud, I ain't going to do it today. But I tell you, it's just a song I sing to myself. It's just a song that ministers to me. It's a song that I sing sometimes in the dark night of the soul. There are other times when I reach for a scripture verse, and I've got to be honest with you, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 is quite helpful. That since I have been raised with Christ, 
I must set my heart and my mind on things above. It, it, it helps to reboot me. It helps to reorient me. It helps to rewire me. And it may be helpful for you to grab a song, to grab a scripture verse, something that helps to reorient your stinking thinking, to reorient how you're thinking and how you're feeling. Because friends, if you are singing when nobody's listening, and if you are quoting scripture, just mumbling to yourself, you're not crazy. You're Christ-like. Because you are an individual who says, I want to be so captivated by the Lord that I want to take captive every thought and every feeling that comes into my life. So in a very dramatic way, what the Apostle Paul does is in verses 5 to 11, he identifies 11 fashion faux pas. Verses 5 to 11, he says you got to take off 11 things. And then in verses 12 to 17, he says, I need you to put on 11 other things. Now, from the very outset of you thinking about this, and I like to sink deeply into your heart, I want you to realize that when God tells you to take something out of your life, he always has something by his grace to replace it in your life. That's how God operates. Because God knows that if you just try to stop doing some bad stuff without replacing it with good stuff, then you inevitably will retreat back to doing the bad stuff over and over again. So Paul's going to say, I need you to take out, take off 11 things. I need you to put on 11 other things. He uses the imagery of garments. He uses the imagery of clothing. It's literally, the words he uses are take off, put on. It's the imagery of, of clothing. And, and if you go with me in this analogy, what Paul is saying is, I, I need you to take off the grave clothes. And I need you to put on grace clothes. Take off grave clothes. Because as a believer, as a Christian, one who's been crucified with Christ and buried with him and raised with him and one day will be glorified with him, I need you to take off the grave clothes. But you'll remember that the tomb was empty, right? Not exactly. There was something left in the grave on that first Easter Sunday. It was the grave clothes of Jesus, folded up nice and neatly and placed right there because Jesus says, I don't need those anymore. And so he left the grave clothes in the tomb. You remember when Lazarus was called forth from the tomb, Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, and he comes hopping out of the grave. What's the first thing Jesus says? Take off his grave clothes. He doesn't need them anymore. Because all throughout the Bible, grave clothes carry the foul stench of death and sin. You're alive. You don't need to be draped in death. You are alive. You don't need to just kind of uh, flirt with the old self. So Paul is going to say, take off. 11 grave clothes items. Take them off. I want you to note quickly that Paul says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. That phrase that's translated put to death is one Greek word, mortify, kill, slaughter, slay. Pretty graphic, isn't it? It's pretty violent. Paul says that you, Christian, you, 
You've got to put to death anything that smells like earthly garments. Anything that has a stench or even the sight of your old sinfulness. You've got to mortify it. You've got to slay it. You've got to slaughter it. He cannot be more violent in his terminology. He doesn't say dabble with it. He doesn't say just put it aside. He doesn't say just put it over there and in a bad moment you can reach back over there and get it. No, he says to mortify it, slaughter it, slay it. And out of the 11 things he says to take off, the first four have to do with sexual sin. Isn't that ironic? Because in Paul's day, sexual sin was prominent and prevalent. 2,000 years have passed. Not a whole lot's changed. In our day, one of the most foul-smelling stenches of death is sexual sin. So Paul begins this list by saying, take off sexual immorality. That's the Greek word pornea, from which we get the English word pornography. Not that any teenager, graduate, or adult has ever been caught in pornography, right? Apparently they did in Paul's day, and apparently they do in our day. The surveys are consistent and woeful. That one out of every two self-proclaiming religious men, one out of every five self-proclaiming religious women, four out of ten pastors viewed pornography at some point in this past week. Paul says, you've got to take that off. Not just take it off. you got to mortify it. you got to kill it. you got to slay it. You've got to put it to death. Or you'll be walking around with the foul stench of grave clothes on. So the very first word is pornea, sexual immorality. The second word is impurity. And that word means moral uncleanliness. It's the imagery of dirty garments. It's somebody who has been bathed, been washed, and then they put on their old clothes again. Nobody does that. You've been around people that do that. They put on their stale clothes again. They don't think they stink, but they stink. They really do. Because they, they walk past you and you get that aroma saying, brother, you know, change your undershirt, right? I mean, because I know you've had a shower, but you smell like you're wearing three-day-old clothes. Moral uncleanliness. Paul says you got to take that off. And then, lust. We all say, I, we know what that word means, but this word lust that Paul uses, he uses the same word elsewhere to speak of the lust of the barbarians, the lust of the Gentiles. He even uses the same word to speak about the lust of the homosexual. And Paul says, you've got to take that off. That is not to be something that describes a child of God. And then evil desires. That too is a word that carries sexual promiscuity with it. It's a very selfish word. It's evil desires that well up inside of you. He says, fifthly, to take off greed, which is idolatry. If you're tracking with me, you go down to verse 8. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger and rage. What's the difference between anger and rage? Anger is just flying off at the handle. Rage is being violent when you fly off at the handle. You got to get rid of that. Paul says you got to take off malice. 
What is malice? Malice is to do something with the intention of harming somebody. Malice and slander. Most of us will never be guilty of murder. I mean, there may be a few you scoundrels that will kill somebody, but, but most, most of us will not actually kill somebody. But just about all of us will slice and dice somebody's reputation with a slanderous word that comes across our tongue. Oh, we may not literally put them to death, but the desire is to get them out of the way, to, to uh, slander, to slaughter their reputation. And all it takes is a few poorly chosen words at inappropriate times in the wrong ears of somebody else and slander is off and running. Paul also says that we are to take off filthy language from our lips. Yes, this word does mean cursing, but it's more than that. It's more than just eliminating five, six, seven poorly choice words from your vocabulary. It's, it's more than just stop saying a few things and you don't need me to, uh, to list out those few curse words because we all know what they are. And plus, I'd probably be fired if I said it in a sermon. All right. So we all know the foul language that we're not supposed to use. But this word is more expansive than that. It's also talking about all the words that we use. The, the crude jokes that we tell. The lewd language that we use. That all of that filthy, the idea is rotten fruit. The, the rotten fruit that comes out of our mouth. Paul says you got to get rid of that. You got to get rid of, of the filthy language that comes from our mouth. And then, last but not least, he says, I want you to not lie to each other. Since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, you and I are not to lie to each other. You remember that New Testament story in Acts chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira? They simply lied to the church and they died on the spot. They lied and they died. Why? Because they were breaking the unity of the body of Christ. They lied to the church about money that they had gotten from selling a piece of property that they had committed unto the work of the Lord in the church. They lied about it. They died right there on the spot. I don't have any scientific proof to support what I'm about to say, but I just have a holy hunch that we would probably um, be shocked or embarrassed or ashamed to know our brothers and sisters that have been involved the last few days in these 11 items, we, we'd probably be shocked by that. And we'd probably lie about it. We'd probably lie to each other saying, no, 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 we don't, we don't do that. We have no problem with that. And I wonder that if God still dealt today with people who lied the same way he dealt with Ananias and Sapphira, I wonder how many pews would be empty and how many empty pews would stare at empty pulpits. There was a longtime church member who came up to the pastor, said, preacher, I really don't think you need to preach like this. 
And this is so confrontational. It's so in your face. You need to remember that these are the kind of things, those are the kind of sermons that need to be spoken to lost people, not church people. You need to remember that church people have different sins than lost people. The preacher looked at that longtime church member and he said, you know what, thank you for bringing that to my attention because you're exactly right. Church people do have different sins than lost people because the sin of church people is even worse. Paul says, you and I have to take off the grave clothes. Why? In light of who we are in Christ. Because of who Jesus is. That's why we take off the grave clothes. Because of what Jesus has done. That's why we take off the grave clothes. We don't need the foul stench of death to occupy our existence. Because we have been set free. Crucified with Christ. We no longer bear the sin. We've been buried with the Lord. And because of Christ's power, we've been raised to walk in newness of life. Paul's going to say to the Corinthians, he says, Will you unite Christ with a prostitute? The answer is no, I can't fathom that. To sexually unite Christ with a prostitute? How vile is that? And Paul says, when you do these things, that's precisely what you're doing. So take off gray clothes. Then he says, I want you to put on grace clothes. Once again, God covers the grossness of our sin with the gracefulness of his salvation. Quickly, I want you to see verses 12 to 17. He's going to list out another 11 things that you and I need to put on. So he says, clothe yourselves, verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. Literally, the text reads, put on. Put on yourselves compassion. That's a word that means tender mercy. You and I are to be tender towards each other. Kindness. That's a word that battles harshness. Humility. That is the opposite of self-exaltation. Gentleness, which elsewhere in the New Testament is described and translated as meekness. And meekness is always portrayed as power under the control of the Spirit of God. And patience. You and I are to put on patience for the Lord. That we are to wait upon him. And he will renew our strength. Verse 13 says, bear with each other. That's the word forbearance. We are patient waiting on God and we are patient with each other. I hope that you're patient with me. I strive to be patient with you because all of us have a similar testimony. We may not be what we ought to be, but praise God, I'm not what I used to be. And so we strive to be patient with each other. Paul says to forgive, to put on Forgiveness, whatever grievances you may have against one another, forgive as the Lord forgave you. John MacArthur is exactly right. You are never more like God than when you forgive somebody. And I'm talking about forgiveness without strings attached. I'm not forgiveness without hoping that you're going to get something in return. Genuine, honest forgiveness. MacArthur says you're never more like God than when you forgive Verse 14, over all these virtues, put on love. If you've been in church any length of time, you know this word for love is agape. It's God's love. It's unconditional love. Verse 15, put on the peace of Christ. Allow that to rule your hearts. 
The peace of Christ is more than just a feeling that you have. And it's far more than the lack of insomnia. I've met people and I've asked them the question, do you have a peace about this, whatever this may be? And they say, yeah, I feel pretty good about it. Or they may say, you know, I haven't lost any sleep over it. Need I remind you that Jonah didn't lose any sleep and he felt pretty good about his decision of disobedience. Jonah made his way south to Joppa. He had just enough money to purchase a ticket to go to Tarshish in the opposite direction of Nineveh. When the storm struck, where was Jonah? He was in the bottom of the boat and what was he doing? He was fast asleep. He felt pretty good about his decision and he didn't lose any sleep over it, but he had no peace with God. Peace is more than a feeling. Peace is more than your ability to sleep at night. This word peace, have the peace of God, it's the imagery that allow that peace to rule. The word is to umpire. Allow that one, allow the peace of God to call balls and strikes in your life. Allow the peace of God to determine what's in bounds and out of bounds. It's it's the peace of God that's dependent upon the God of the peace. So you put on that peace of Christ, for it will rule your heart and your mind. In verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. To the graduates, to every person listening to my voice, let the word of Christ dwell in you. You'll never get to a season of life where you don't need God's word. Let me say that again. You will never get in a season of life where you don't need God's word. In fact, every season of life that I come to, I need more of God's word than I did before. So I got a sneaking suspicion that the older I get, the more of God's word I'm going to need in my life. People who do not live by the word of God probably don't read the word of God. Because if you allow the word of God to read you and you read it, it will impact how you live. So allow the word of God to dwell in you richly. Last thing Paul says is to put on thankfulness. Verse 17, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That whatever you do, be thankful. Whatever you do, wherever you are, Whether you're singing or whether you're shopping, whether you are driving or whether you're walking, whether you're swinging a hammer or swinging a baseball bat, whether you are um, in class or whether you're on the rec field, whether you are waiting for a doctor's appointment or waiting for retirement, whether you are raising a family or, or whether you're making a business deal. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all for the glory of God and all the while give thanks unto him to put on gratitude and thankfulness unto the Lord. Paul says, I want you to be dressed for success. In order to do that, you gotta take off some things. But don't just think that in your own power you're gonna take off some sinful activity without replacing it with godliness and godly activity. So Paul says, I want you to take off some things and I want you to put on some things. This morning, to the graduates and to everybody in the crowd, I'm gonna call you to the altar today. And I want you to view this altar as a changing room, as a dressing room. And here at the altar of God, spiritually speaking, take off some things. 
put some things down and then put on some other things the things that he has written about here in Colossians chapter 3 because of who Christ is because you have been raised with Christ I want you to walk out of here dressed for success I want you to take off the grave clothes. I want you to put on the grace clothes. I'll go ahead and tell you up front, this ought to be a sermon. This ought to be a moment where the altar's full. And that's great because God has a lot of changing rooms. He has enough dressing rooms for you. That's okay. If it's full, you come on anyway because there's just enough space for God to deal with you. Because there may be something in your life. Maybe I hit on it. Maybe I jumped on it. Maybe I just glanced on it. Maybe I didn't even mention it. But there may be something in your life that you need to take off today. By the Spirit's power, take it off and leave it off. And by the Spirit's power, put on the grace clothes that he provides us in Jesus Christ. And as we walk out, let's have a sovereign strut. I mean, as we walk out, let's be dressed to the nines. As we walk out, let's be dressed for success because we've taken off the grave clothes and put on the grace clothes by the power of Christ. Heavenly Father, we give you this invitation. Draw us to your changing room. We don't just want to be inspired. We don't just want to be informed. But by your Spirit's power, we want to be transformed by the power of the gospel. So Lord, I pray that you will transform preacher and people. You will transform the young and the old. You will trans, uh, transform us for your good and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.